Um, <clears throat> there's a Barna study that's been done multiple times now, that, and I think the, the stat is still the same, that says about 70% of high school students will leave their faith before they leave college. And hearing that, and being a former student pastor, and we've got a phenomenal one now, um, you probably hearing that as a parent, um, that's a shocking stat. And if you double click on it and start looking, it says about 50% of those um, never really got plugged into a church when they went to college, which is a huge thing that we need to own as a church family is making sure that our students, whether they stay or whether they go, are getting plugged in. And then they said, based on research, they think about 35% of those 70 that left ended up coming back around and not leaving the faith, but just left the church for a season. And I don't say that like it's a guarantee or that's going to happen or to you or your family or anything like that, but it is a trend that we picked up on. And I tell you that because today we're going to talk about one of the primary attacks that our students will hear in college. And it's attacking the credibility of the Bible. And you're like, well, I'm not a college student, so what does this mean for me? It doesn't just happen in college. All it takes is a coworker or a friend or your crazy uncle or a cousin to say, hey, you know you can't trust that book, right? You know it's been changed over and over again for years and years and years, and we don't even have the originals, and it's all been tweaked and changed to say what people way back when wanted it to say. <clears throat> it's been corrupted time and time again. Well, there's actually a very well-known pastor in Atlanta um, who essentially was talking to his church about the Bible and used the phrase that it's a house of cards, implying that if you just pull the right piece out, the whole thing comes tumbling down. And he uses phrase like it's sacred, but it's not scientific. And it's appreciative, we can appreciate it, but it's not necessarily factual. And it's inspirational, but it's not necessarily true. This is a quote, and I use that term very loosely, pastor. I was telling Elizabeth, it was sad that we were essentially watching this man's deconstruction right in front of his church from the pulpit. Faith crumbling. And whether you might hear that in college or maybe you were taught that in college or whether a friend brings that to your attention, here's one of our two responses. We can either avoid the evidence because we're afraid if we really look that we might find something we don't like or we can take a hard look at the evidence and see if our faith is standing on something solid. And I don't wanna speed past and assume that some of you aren't already there. Some of you might just be holding on because this is what I've always done and this is what I've always been told, but you've never looked at the evidence and you've been told, hey, if you take a hard look, if you look under the hood, you're not gonna like what you see when it comes to the Bible. Do we have what they wrote back then? And how do we know that we have what they wrote back then? Or has it been changed? Do we even have the words of Jesus? Do we not? There's this group of, and I use the term very loosely, secular um, textual critics that got together and essentially looked at all the gospels and, and tried to verify the different words that Jesus said. And they ended up you know, picking one or two sentences out of all the gospels that Jesus said. And it wasn't even an impactful one. And it was like Jesus was said, you know, hey man, or something like it was something totally generic. And it's, it's, it's far from the truth, but some of you, maybe you've seen the Da Vinci Code. And Dan Brown in the Da Vinci Code, he says this, the Bible's evolved through countless translations, editions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the book. And there's many other um, religious scholars, uh, a Muslim scholar named M.M. M. Al-Azami, um, he actually regularly 
debates and critiques Christianity and attacks it. And he's talking about the idea that in the, in the early days, um, the Orthodox church essentially changed what the Bible said to fit the, the theology that they wanted to teach people. And he says this, in each case, this sect, the one that would rise to become the Orthodox church, deliberately corrupted the scriptures so as to reflect its own theological visions of Christ while demolishing that of all rival sects. And it's also in the secular world. Um, Kirk Eichenwald, he, wor- he writes for Newsweek and um, he has a interesting quote. Um, he says this, no television preacher, I don't know why he picked television preachers, um, has ever read the Bible. Neither has any evangelical politician. Neither has the Pope. Neither have I and neither have you. At best, we've all read a bad translation. A translation of translations of translations of hand copied copies of copies of copies and on and on and on hundreds of times. There's a professor, um, his name is Bart Ehrman, and you need to know this name. Um, He's a professor of religious studies, believe it or not, at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, He was actually the protege of probably the the greatest textual critic of the 21st century, or of the 20th century. Um, He died in 2007. Bruce Metzger, one of the greatest believing textual critics to ever lived. And Bart Ehrman was his protege until Bart Ehrman became an agnostic and decided to walk away from the faith, um, but knows a lot about the ancient documents and manuscripts, enough to be really dangerous um, with college students and with teenagers, and loves to go in debates and try to confuse young believers, loves to try to direct people away from the faith. Um, he himself um, claims to be, have been a believer, um, went to Moody Bible Institute, went to Wheaton, went on to um, Princeton Seminary and started working for Metzger until he walked away from the faith. And he actually has a book called Misquoting Jesus. Um, I have one here and I bought it used on eBay because I didn't want him to make any more money from it. Um, and if I can take it from someone else's hands, that'd be great. Um, but this is what he says in his book. Um, in fact, it had a boring title originally and the publishers um, changed the title to Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why. And now it's sold millions and millions of copies because of the title. And this is what he says um, in this book. And we'll quote it a couple of times. But he says, the more I studied the manuscript tradition of the New Testament, the more I realized just how radically the text had been altered over the years at the hands of the scribes. It would be wrong to say, as some people do, or people sometimes do, that the changes in our text have no real bearing on what the text means or on theological conclusions that one draws from them. Essentially, the text has been changed so many times that if you take a look under the hood, you're not going to like what you find. And therefore, you shouldn't trust it to begin with. So this is what we're diving into today. We're going to look at some of those ancient documents, and we're going to nerd out for a minute and all of those things. So I would encourage you to pay attention, to work hard to pay attention. And like I said, if you want the notes, I'll put them on your phone before you leave. Um, But this entire field of study is called textual criticism. I've used that term a couple times already. Textual criticism is looking at ancient manuscripts, looking at ancient documents um, in an effort to understand and discover the wording and the meaning of the original document. Does that make sense? So it's studying, essentially studying lots and lots of old ancient documents to discover the reading of the original. 
Um, the hardest assignments I had in seminary were about textual criticism. It was taking this Greek New Testament, and in the bottom of the Greek New Testament, there's an apparatus that has all of these textual criticism notes and trying to decide which reading is the best and all of those kind of things, and we'll talk about all that. Um, but my most difficult assignments in seminary had to do with textual criticism. And I just want to say this from the get-go. All of this content is not original to me. Um, Daniel Wallace, Dr. Daniel Wallace, um, he is the um, senior research professor of the New Testament at Dallas Theological Seminary. Um, He's also the founder of the um, Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts um, in the early 2000s. It's the world's leading um, manuscript, uh, religious manuscript center in in the entire world. Um, Their mission is to discover and digitize and document every single ancient manuscript of the Bible. And there's lots of job security in that because we're gonna see this morning that there is a ton. This man is doing phenomenal work. Um, But Dr. Daniel Wallace, in fact, this week, um, to my wife's demise and to my own, really, um, I stumbled on a um, free online course taught by Daniel Wallace about textual criticism, and I watched 37 lectures. Um, I reached an all-time low. Um, of Daniel Wallace teaching about ancient documents uh, this week just for you. So we are going to hit the, not like if the tip of the iceberg had a tip, that's what we're gonna be talking about this morning. Um, You can get much deeper and much nerdier into all of this stuff and I will save you the boredom, okay? Um, I had a dream Monday night about textual criticism. Um, So once again, all time low. But um, Daniel Wallace, um, he's done all of this research. All of this content comes from him. He runs the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. And um, yeah, it's been a a fun time this week. Um, Yeah, so let me define a couple terms for you. Um, First term you need to know is autograph. Uh, We think autograph, we think like a ball player signing a jersey or a basketball or something like that. Um, The term autograph, when it comes to textual criticism, just means the original like the, the one of one. There's only one original, and it's the original document that Paul wrote, that Matthew wrote, that Luke wrote. That's what um, textual critics call the autograph. I'll probably just use the word original so it doesn't confuse you, but if you hear me say autograph, that's what I'm talking about. Um, you might be surprised to know that not having the autograph is actually very common. Um, we don't have the original autograph of the Gettysburg Address that Lincoln gave at the Battle of Gettysburg, which was written long after the printing press showed up. And we have five official copies um, that he actually wrote after the fact, months after the fact, and they have differences between the copies. And a secular form of textual criticism would be to look at those copies and examine them and look at the differences between the two and find um, some of what the wording is of the original. That's essentially what text criticism is, is looking at all of these documents and tracing the errors and seeing the differences and getting back to the original. And you might be surprised by this, some of you might not, um, but we do not have the original autographs of the New Testament. We don't have them. Um, The reason for that being, and don't let that scare you, I promise you I'll relieve the the fears before the message is over, Um, but we don't have the original autographs. Um, They weren't written on paper, Um, they were written on papyrus. And a papyrus plant grew near the Nile River, and it was actually this reed or the stem that they would um, little cut and flatten out, and they would take lots of these stems and they would lay them on top of each other and they would just beat them. 
and the juices of all of these layers of these stems would seep out and it would cause all of these layers of this plant to absorb together. And that was the best they got for paper. And papyri, since it's a plant and since it's not durable like some of the things we get to write on today, um, on a good day, untouched, perfectly protected, might last 200 years. It might. And that's, you write on it, you preserve it, you vacuum seal it, you do whatever, and you don't touch it. The problem with that is, if you think about the ancient documents of the the New Testament, especially, but of the Bible, um, these weren't just touched. They were consumed and read and opened and closed and hidden from Roman authorities and passed and delivered. Paul even writes at the end of Colossians, he says, hey, be looking out for the letter from Laodicea and send my letter onto them. That Paul's instructing the church to hold these things. It was their lifeblood that they, at the end of Acts, that they got together and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to their writings. They opened them up, they closed them, they handled them, they read them, they copied them, that these things wouldn't have lasted hardly 200 years. There's no way. Because they were written on flimsy papyrus and they were the lifeblood of the church. So that's why we don't have the original autographs or documents. So the other term you need to know is manuscript. A manuscript is a handwritten copy of an ancient document. It's not the original, it is a handwritten copy. So when I talk about we have X amount of manuscripts, what I mean is we have um, a certain amount of copies that someone hand wrote of an ancient document. Does that make sense? So autograph is the original, manuscript is just a copy. So here's what I wanna do. Let's look at the number of ancient New Testament manuscripts that we have. Um, just to give you a a glimpse of what we're dealing with here. Um, We have roughly 6,000 Greek New Testament manuscripts. Over 5,800, close to 6,000. More are being published today and they take a while to be published because sometimes you find a fragment of one and you wanna make sure that it's not a part of one that you've already kind of published and registered. So you gotta do a lot of work just to make sure it's new and it takes a long time. But more are being added on a daily basis. And that's just in Greek. So 6,000 Greek manuscripts, and I'll show you why this is a lot in just a minute. We have over 10,000 New Testament manuscripts in Latin, and then we've got anywhere from five to 10,000 in other languages, in uh, Syriac, Coptic, other languages. And so that's 20-something thousand manuscripts from the New Testament, all of these copies. Now, wave a magic wand and they all disappear. Um, All hope is not lost, because even if we had zero manuscripts, we have over a million New Testament quotes from the church fathers, one generation removed from the Apostle Paul and from Matthew and Mark and Luke. Some of their protégés, their disciples, their followers became the early church fathers. And just in their documents, in their sermons, in their writings, all the times that they quoted verses from the Bible, we could put the Bible back together just by looking at the quotes from the church fathers. We have that many. Now, you might not be impressed, but let me compare that to other secular, contemporary, Greco-Roman manuscripts. If you look at this list behind me, um, Pliny the Elder, we have 200 copies, and this is massive for a contemporary Greco-Roman author. 6,000 just in Greek in the New Testament. We've got 200 copies of his manuscripts And the earliest is 700 years after 
they were said to be written. Josephus, we've got 20 copies, and the earliest is 800 years after the original. And you can just look down the list, 1,200 years after, 1,400 years after, 1,500 years after. Um, Xenophon, in, in his writing of um, Hellenica, he, 1,800 years after. And this is good enough to go in your history books. 1,800 years removed, handful of copies. The average amount of copies we have for ancient literature is about 20 to 25. 20 to 25 copies, and that's credible enough for your kids to learn about it in social studies and in history class. That's considered credible. And in the New Testament, we have 6,000 just in Greek, 10,000 in Latin, and five to 10,000 in other languages. A million quotes from church fathers and the earliest we have is within the first century. One manuscript to believe, and we'll look at it today, to be from 90 AD. Secular and religious textual critics love to use the term when it comes to the Bible, there is no ancient document like it and we have an embarrassment of riches. There is no other ancient document that compares. Doesn't even come close the Bible beats up on any other ancient document when it comes to how much evidence we have, the, the verifiable evidence we have, how soon the evidence shows up. So if you compare the amounts, let's look at it. The average classical Greek writer has less than 20 copies of his work still in existence. If you were to stack them up, they would be about four feet high. I'm not good with heights and things. Is there any kid in here that's four feet tall? Um, we know four feet, right? I'm six feet tall, two feet less than me, <clears throat> compare that to our New Testament manuscripts. Our New Testament manuscripts range from fragments all the way to full copies of the entire Bible and the entire New Testament. The average New Testament manuscript is 450 pages. And if you were to stack all of the ancient New Testament manuscripts up that we have today, it would be four and a half times the size of the Empire State Building. This is how much evidence we have that the Bible existed, that these words are true. And this is just the quantity of the evidence. We're gonna look at the quality in just a second. But it is an embarrassing amount compared to any other ancient document in human history. It is almost as if someone divine preserved this book for us, for us to be able to have and find all of these documents. We have an embarrassment of riches. Let me show you a couple of ancient manuscripts. Um, one of the popular theories in European scholarship um, based on the evidence that they had at the time um, was that John's gospel was actually written around 175 AD or 200 AD, uh, which is problematic because John would have been long dead by 175 or 200 AD. If he was alive when Jesus was alive, there's no way he's living 150 more years. And all the evidence we had led people to believe and led the church to believe, led some heretics to believe um, that either John's gospel was manufactured, that it wasn't real because all the evidence pointed to the fact that it was written around 175 to 200 AD until this fragment was discovered. And this is P52. We'll put it up there. The P just stands for papyrus or papyri. 
and they're all numbered and given a label and all those things. This is P52. It was discovered by C.H. Roberts in 1934. Um, and on the front, you can see a couple of lines, about seven lines from John 18. And on the back, you can see some more lines from uh, verses 37 and 38 of John 18. And here's what's fascinating about this is it was dated anywhere from AD 120, but one scholar said this is, um, all of the signs are pointing to the fact that it's dated at AD 90. And don't miss the significance of that. If a copy of John showed up around AD 90, where does that put the original? About the time of John, right? We found a copy in AD 90 of John's own writing. Same century that John lived and died, AD 90. We find this copy. One ancient paleographer actually commented, and he's obviously using hyperbole, but he said, it's as if this document was written when John's ink had just dried. That you've got this person who has taken the gospel of John and he has written it out. And we found this fragment in 1932. Um, Dan Brown in the Da Vinci Code, um, he loves to, to talk about the Council of Nicaea and attack the early church. And one of the things that he claims in his book, if you've ever read the book or watched the movie, is that um, Constantine, the Emperor Constantine, he invented the deity of Christ. That there, no one believed that Jesus was God no one believed that he was divine and the council of Nicaea gets together 300 AD and that this emperor, he invented the deity of Christ because he wanted to. And uh, here's his quote. He says, my dear Tebing declared until that moment in history, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless, a mortal. That this was the, the view according to Dan Brown, who wrote the Da Vinci code, um, about the deity of Jesus. Um, the problem with that is uh, this document was found, and this is, I've got my little laser pointer here, so don't be alarmed. Um, this is, we're getting full nerdy today. Um, this is P66. This was found in AD, or this was dated to be around AD 175 uh, to AD 200. So what that means is, is about 125, 150 years before the Council of Nicaea, supposedly came up with the deity of Christ, this document exists. And what is this document, you might ask? We can zoom in if you want. Um, this word right here is euangelion, which means gospel according to John. And what does it say? It says in arche, does anyone know um, archaeology in English, what archaeology is? What's, what's archaeology? I couldn't hear you, I'm sorry. Um, arche, the word arche in Greek just means beginning. Archaeology is the study of the beginning things. And what does this say? In the beginning, hein halagos was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. And he was with God in the beginning. So 150 years before supposedly Emperor Constantine came up with the idea that Jesus was God, Christians all over the world were reading that Jesus has eternally existed as God. And here's why we're doing this sermon. Here's why we're looking at this this morning because an ounce of evidence can remove thousands of years of presumption and theory. As soon as you find a document like P66, then suddenly all that scholarship and theory goes right out the window with one ounce of evidence. And we see 
that not only was he the word and the word was with God and the word was God, all things were made by him and by him nothing was made that was made. In him was the light, the light was the light of men. In verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. The glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That the believers were reading that 150 years before supposedly it was made up. So let's look at what does all this mean? Let me give you kind of a summary. And uh, I'm actually gonna use uh, the King James as an example uh, we'll talk about that. Um, we're not going to have time to get in translation today. I'd love to talk to you about it. If you want to talk to me about it, I, I, we're, just, we're not going to have time. I'm not going to keep you longer to talk about translation. I plan to, but I just we're not going to be able to. But here's an example, if we can put that table up there. Um, this is um, the King James Version right here. Um, it was put together in 1611, and it was based off of seven manuscripts. Seven manuscripts. Um, it's actually called the Texas Receptus. It's this group of seven manuscripts that um, essentially the early church, they claimed and decided that this was the text that was gonna be received by everybody. And um, it was, uh, the earliest manuscript of those seven was dated to the 11th century. So here's what we see now. In 2013, you could even argue in 2023, uh, we now have over 5,800 manuscripts that make our current translations and they go back as earliest to the second century. So what this is saying here is as time has gone on, it's not like the telephone game where we've gotten further and further away from the original. We've actually gotten closer and closer. And if you're a King James person, um, please know that you're not reading anything that's inherently heretical, no major doctrines are different in the King James. It's just not the most accurate translation because it was only based on a group of seven manuscripts. And the seven manuscripts weren't even the earliest that we had. But the point of this graph is not to, to hate on the King James. It's actually one of the most um, amazing documents in all of human history. I would encourage everyone to own one. Um, the cadence of the King James is phenomenal to read. It's one of, one of the benefits of the King James, but it's not the most reliable translation that we have. If you've memorized it, you weren't taught heresy, it wasn't malicious, that this church just, they was the only manuscripts that they had. So they did what they could with what they had. But as time has gone forward, we've actually gotten closer to what the original text says, not further away, if that makes sense. The more technology, the more manuscripts we have, the more we're able to, to trace the different discrepancies in them, and we've actually gotten closer and closer and closer to the original, not further and further away. So, one more term you need to know about is textual variant. And this is where things are gonna get interesting. Textual variant. Um, if you're a Marvel watcher, um, it's kinda like a variant in Marvel, but not really. Um, a textual variant is a copy, um, it's a discrepancy in copies. So if you've got two ancient manuscripts and one says it this way and one says it a different way, that's a textual variant. That's a difference between the two copies. Does that make sense? That's what a textual variant is. It's looking at these manuscripts. This one says, John loves Paul. This one says, Paul loves John. It's a difference in manuscripts. That's a hypothetical example. We don't find that in the New Testament, by the way. Um, but that would be one textual variant. So here's what we need to see. Um, how many words are there in the Greek New Testament? There are 132,162 words in the Greek New Testament. As I said, these guys are nerds, right? 
138,162 variants in the or words in the Greek New Testament. Now, how many variants are there in the manuscripts that we have? The answer is there are about 400,000 variants in our Greek New Testament manuscripts. Now, do not leave, because if that's all you hear, you're going to leave very discouraged. And in fact, that's all Bart Ehrman wants you to hear. He doesn't talk about what the variances are and the nature of them. He loves to throw out the line that there are more variants, there are more differences between the manuscripts than there are actual words in the Greek New Testament. It's his favorite line to mention. It's in all of his books. We got more variants than we do words. He loves to mention it. But here's what I want you to see, and we're gonna look at the variants. We're gonna walk out of here with absolute certainty before we leave. I'm not gonna leave you hanging. But the reason we have so many variants is because we have so many stinking copies. If you only got two copies, you're not gonna have many variants. If you got 20,000 copies, you're gonna have some, some variants. I guarantee you, if each of us, for the next 10 minutes, just wrote out John 1, copied it from our own English Bibles, we would have at least 100 variants where you wrote something wrong on accident, where you misspelled something, where you put the wrong ending to a word. It happens. And the reason we have so many variants is because we have an embarrassing amount of copies. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna actually look at the variants because I promise you, this is not bad news. Some of you are like 400,000 differences between the copies. That doesn't sound like you can clear that up pretty quickly, but we're gonna clear it up. So we're gonna look. A couple things you need to know. There's different categories of variants. Uh, the first category is meaningful variants. Meaningful means that it's not meaningful like, oh, that was significant or that was awesome or that was, no, meaningful means that the meaning of the sentence changes. Does that make sense? If there's a different reading between these two manuscripts, these two copies, and the different reading causes the meaning to change, that would be a meaningful variant. Does that make sense? If it doesn't change the meaning, then it's not a meaningful variant. Those that are meaningful change the meaning of the sentence. The other category is viable. Now, viable means um, that there's a difference between the manuscripts, but it comes from a credible manuscript or a credible family of manuscripts, and it's accepted as a legitimate or a credible, reliable change. And I'll give you an example of that um, in, uh, in English in just a minute. But meaningful means that it changes the meaning, and viable means that it actually comes from a credible source. And I'll show you what that means in just a second. But there's lots of rules that they use to determine viability. We won't talk about them all, but you can look at them there. Um, they would look at the date and the character of the manuscripts as they were comparing them. Um, they would look at the text type. Um, different families of manuscripts were more reliable than others. Um, they would look at the more difficult reading. Um, if you're a scribe and you feel like you're trying to help the church, what you would do is you would try to smooth out a reading that was difficult. So they actually look for the harder reading because that's most often what the author, the original author wrote. Scribes would come in and they think they were helping, but they were actually creating more errors than not. And they would try to smooth out more difficult readings. And they would actually look for the shorter reading because if you're gonna smooth out something, you're not gonna omit words. No scribe wanted to do that. They would add 
more words, add more conjunctions, add more details to try to smooth out a reading and make it easier to understand. They wouldn't take things away. And then they also look for the um, type of manuscript that's, that's more ge- geographically spread around the world. It's actually a really important test that they would do is because just like the King James, you could bank on and depend on a group of manuscripts that all came from the same area, same region of the world, and it, all it took was for one manuscript to have a couple errors in it, and then all of that family um, is no longer accurate. Does that make sense? So they would look and say, hey, if it's true, if it shows up here and the same reading shows up here, shows up in Asia Minor, shows up in um, Jerusalem, shows up in the Americas, one, like all those kind of things, that's a very, very good sign. So let me show you a couple of variants that are essentially viable, They come from credible manuscripts, but they're not meaningful. Um, The first one, I I told you, we're getting a little nerdy today, but it's okay. The first one is called the movable new. The Greek letter N is is the letter new. That's the name for the Greek letter N. And just like in English, if we're going to say, we don't say a apple in English, right? What do we do? We put an N on there to make it easier to pronounce. We say an apple. Same thing applies in Greek. Except in Greek, you can do it a lot more. And this is actually the most common variant in all of the New Testament manuscripts. Doesn't change the meaning at all. Not meaningful one bit. That you can add an N. Um, In Greek, it's even more because if the word ends in a vowel and the next word begins with a vowel, you can throw an N in there to make it easier to say. So if I'm gonna say beta omega, there's no way that I can't not pause. You have to make your, your, your mouth has to, beta omega, But if I, in Greek, I can slap an N in there and say beta and omega to make it easier to say, smoother to pronounce. Doesn't change the meaning one bit. But this is the movable new. If you have a word that ends in a vowel and the next word begins with a vowel, you can add an N on there, no meaning change whatsoever. This is the most common variant in all of the New Testament manuscripts. Doesn't change the meaning one bit. The other one is spelling differences. Now I wanna be clear, not spelling errors. Spelling differences. There's a difference between the two. The most common example is the spelling of John. We'll throw it up there. Um, But Ionis and Ionis are the two common spellings of John. One has one N. You can see it at the bottom. The other has two Ns. It's like spelling Sarah with an H on the end or no H on the end. Doesn't change the meaning whatsoever. In P66, what we looked at, John was spelled with two Ns. Other times in other manuscripts, it's spelled with one N. This is a textual variant, but it does not change the meaning whatsoever. And the other one, we won't spend a lot of time on it, is word order. Um, I've mentioned this in a couple sermons, but in the Greek language, um, word order does not matter. The only thing word order allows you to do is emphasize certain words that you'd wanna put in the front of a sentence. In English, our word order matters. The subject goes to the beginning of the sentence, the person, place, or thing doing the action, and then the verb comes after the subject, and then you've got your indirect object, your direct object, all those kind of things that come after, right? Parker, subject, through, subject, the notes, whatever. Parker did a terrible job explaining this. (laughs) Subject, verb, direct object. Does that make sense? In Greek, you can mix those up. Because the thing that determines what your subject and your verb is is not where it falls in the sentence, but the ending of the word. 
You put on different endings to make this the subject, this the predicate, this the direct object. So in Greek, if you take the sentence, Jesus loves Paul, there are over 400 ways you can write that sentence. And in every single time, it means Jesus loves Paul. Over 400. And I'm not saying it means Jesus is loved by Paul. No, like literally every one of them means Jesus loves Paul. You can write Jesus loves Paul, Paul loves Jesus, Jesus Paul loves. It doesn't matter because the ending determines its role in the sentence. And then there's the article. It's the word the. There's 24 ways to say the word the in the Greek language. And if you put those in, which they often did with names, which aren't translated, most of the time Jesus's name is mentioned in the New Testament in Greek, it's the Jesus. But we never translate it that way because it's just a thing that they would do for proper nouns, for people's names. One out of every seven words in the Greek New Testament is the word the. If you learn that language, you know a seventh of your Greek New Testament right there. But there's 24 ways to say the, so good luck. But um, word order changes. So those are all viable variants, but none of them change the meaning. Now we're gonna flip the coin around and say, what about meaningful variants? They change the meaning, but they're not viable. They're not credible. Let me give you an example of this. In English, it would be like the preamble of our constitution saying, we the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect onion right? All of us would go, huh, there are no other vegetables mentioned in the constitution. I think he meant to put a U there instead of an O, right? There's a variant, it's different, and it changes the meaning, but nobody believes that it's credible. Nobody believes that it's viable. There's a couple of examples. Let me give you one of these. First Thessalonians 2 verse 7. Paul's writing to the Thessalonian church and he's essentially saying, hey, we could have come down with our weight of being apostles and slammed the hammer on you. But instead he says, we became gentle among you or he says, we became children among you. Some have the word gentle and some translations, if you have the ESV, yours says gentle. If you wanna check, you can. If you have the NIV, yours says children. Now, one of the words is apioi, and one of the words is napioi. And the word we became is eganathemin. So you can imagine how confusing this is. Eganathian napioi and eganathemin apioi. You heard the difference, right? I didn't either. So you can see how a scribe reading this out loud, this could be different. The good thing about this variant is that they essentially mean the same thing. Hey, we became gentle among you, or we became like children among you. We were gentle and kind. We didn't come down with the hammer. But there's also one manuscript out there that says, Eganathemin hippioi, which is we became horses among you. Now that's a meaningful variant. It changes the meaning of that sentence, but nobody believes that it's viable. Not a single person worth their salt in textual criticism says, yep, that could have been what Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church. Not a single person. Another example, John 1.30. John's writing, he's um, quoting John the Baptist here, and he says, after me comes a man, an heir. Um, there's a manuscript out there that says, after me comes heir, which means nothing. Now, this is a pretty big deal. Is John the Baptist saying, hey, after me comes nothing? Or is he saying, after me comes a man? Well, if you look at the rest of what John wrote that is not in question, what does he say? He says, after me comes either a man or nothing who ranks before me because he was before me. 
I myself did not know him, but for his purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. I saw the spirit descend like a dove and it remained on him. He's clearly not talking about nothing. He's clearly talking about a man. So this is a meaningful variant, but it is not viable. So we got to move on really fast, but here's what I want you to know. Out of all 400,000 textual variants, differences between the copies, 20 something thousand copies out of all of the 400,000 differences between the copies, how many variants are neither meaningful or viable or both? 99%. In fact, it's more than 99%. It's 99.75% to be exact. 99.75% of all the differences in our manuscripts are neither meaningful nor viable. They fall into those categories that I just mentioned before you. Less than a fourth of 1% of all differences in the embarrassment of manuscripts that we have has a difference that is both meaningful and viable. So let's look at a couple. Romans 8, 2. Paul says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. There's some manuscripts out there that say they've set me free. The difference between those two words is one letter. You is se in Greek and me is me in Greek. You can see how that might get confusing. The good news is, although it changes the meaning of Paul's sentence, it doesn't change the doctrine or the principle that he's making, that Jesus Christ has set us free from the law of sin and death. Whether Paul's talking about himself or us, he's still talking about believers. Philippians 1.4, most of the brothers and sisters, now more than ever, are more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul's talking about being in prison and now other believers are speaking out. Um, there are translations that add to, they speak the word, some translations say of God and some translations say, or some manuscripts say um, of the Lord. This is the kind of stuff that we're dealing with here. This is the less than one-fourth of 1% of differences in all of these manuscripts. It is as if someone divine preserved these documents for us. There's a couple that are juicy. We'll look at one of them just for kicks. Revelation 13, 18 says this. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, um, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Ask anybody in the world, what's the number of the beast? And you would say 666. The problem is, our two most ancient and most reliable manuscripts of the book of Revelation say the number of the beast is 616. So there's a discrepancy there. And we might ask, okay, so what's the actual number of the beast? To be honest, I don't know. We don't know. And if we were to change it, um, Daniel Wallace likes to say the number of the beast is 666, 616 is the neighbor of the beast. Um, he lives a couple doors down. Um, regardless, I don't think it matters because the only thing in jeopardy is lots of heavy metal band lyrics and really bad Christian fiction books over the years. I don't know a single church, a single seminary, a single religious institution that says, hey, we believe that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God who lived a sinless life. He was born of a virgin. He died a criminal's death. He was buried. He rose again. And that God is three in one. All three are equally and perfectly God. One God and three persons. You're saved by grace through faith alone. And the number of the beast is 666. 
You don't have to know that to join our church. I hope that relieves you. But this is the kind of stuff that we're dealing with. And Bart Ehrman, in his appendix of the paperback book of misquoting Jesus, he's confronted with this. And I actually took a picture of it. I want you to see it on the screen. And here's the quote. Essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. 400,000 differences. 99.75% are not meaningful or viable and not a single one of them affect traditional Christian beliefs. Not a single doctrine is changed. So can you trust what this book says? Yes, you can trust it. You can bet your life on it. You can depend on it. You can bank on it. You can live by it. We have in our hands what they wrote back then. We have the very words of the apostles and the prophets because they were carried along by the Holy Spirit and the same God who carried them along is the same God who preserved these documents for you. Same God who did it. Last thing, and I know I'm over time, so I needed to wrap up. Some of you are like, okay, Parker, what about the Old Testament? All you've talked about is the New Testament. Let me give you a quick summary without kind of triple-clicking on the Old Testament. Um, up until early 1900s, um, our, most, our earliest copy of the Old Testament was about A.D. 900. 900 A.D. was the earliest copy that we had of the Hebrew Old Testament, which is a problem because the Old Testament happened before Jesus. And the earliest copy we had was 900 years after Jesus. And that's an issue until in the 1940s, some Bedouin goat herders were walking along the Dead Sea and a little boy, thank God for um, curious little boys, decided to throw rocks into a cave. And he threw a rock into a cave and he heard a crack. And they went into the cave and they found these clay pots and they opened them and there were scrolls in these caves. And these were the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they took some of these scrolls, they took the, the scroll of Isaiah and they had it looked at and suddenly all this attention and people got involved and uh, it was labeled as the, the most important textual discovery of modern time. And it was dated to be AD or BC, about 100 BC. So before, 900 years after Jesus was the earliest copy we had and now we found one 100 years before Jesus ever lived so what happens between the two? Let's play the telephone game. The only place that this text could have survived, and it wasn't just Isaiah, it was all the books of the Old Testament except for Esther, all in scrolls in the Dead Sea. And the only place that on the earth that these documents could have survived, we find them. It is almost as if someone wanted us to find them. And what happens between a thousand years of the telephone game? Compare the 900 AD to the 100 BC, and there are 17 letters that are different. 10 of them spelling differences, not spelling errors. Four of them are the presence of a conjunction that you don't translate. The only three letters is the Hebrew light that comes after verse 11, where it says, and he would see, um, that document said, and he would see a light. Thousand years difference. Three letters are the only thing in jeopardy and change zero doctrine whatsoever. Why did God reveal and preserve Isaiah 53 for you? So you could read Isaiah 53. So you could read that Jesus would be crushed for our transgressions. 
He would be crushed for our iniquities, that on him would be the chastisement that brought us peace. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why did God preserve this text? The preservation was for salvation, so you could come to know who he is and trust in his word. You could come to know, 100 years before Jesus ever existed, that there was a man who was sent from God, who lived the life that you and I could never live and died to take on our sin. It was, the, it, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Not the joy of the Lord, but it was the plan of the Lord to put our sin on his own son. And we're gonna end our time this morning, and I'm sorry I kind of rushed through the end of that, but I wanted you to get the content by taking communion. And uh, since I've gone too far, um, we're not gonna respond in worship. I'm sorry, worship team, I'll just... Um, make that call just to, to be considerate of everybody in their time. Um, but we're gonna respond by taking communion. And you should have gotten the elements. And I wanna be clear, um, if you are not a believer, um, we would ask that you not take this. Um, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians um, that we should take this in a worthy manner and that this is for the believer, um, for us to remember that Jesus died for us, that his blood was shed for us, his body was broken for us, and um, this is one of the, the things we do to examine ourselves and repent and remember and proclaim what Jesus has done in our lives. So if you're a child and you've never put your faith in Jesus, you're totally fine. Just stay where you are. You're in good company. But we ask that you don't take it. And if you're an unbeliever, if you're like, hey, I don't know about Jesus yet, I'm not sure, we would also encourage you not to take it. Um, you would actually be obeying scripture by not doing that and you won't get any guilt or condemnation from us. But if you are a believer, uh, we wanna intentionally stop and take time and remember Jesus' body broken and his blood shed. So before you take it, Paul instructs us in 1 Corinthians 11 that we should examine ourselves. Uh, what I love about today is we're doing the spiritual meal together and then we'll come back tonight and do the physical meal. Um, he was condemning the Corinthian church. They were treating it as just another meal, just another wafer and another thing of wine. We're using juice. But they were just treating it like another thing. And Paul said, no, 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 no. Stop and examine yourself. Remember that this is the symbolic representation of Jesus's body broken and his blood shed for you. That the man Isaiah talked about in Isaiah 53 was a real man who came to earth and knew that you could never be good enough to win God's favor. And he won it for you. And then he went to the cross and died on our behalf. So take a minute. Let's not take this communion flippantly. Let's not take it as we dabble in unrepentant sin. Just take a minute and confess sin before the Lord. Examine your heart. Examine your life. And run to the throne of grace. The reason we're taking this is because your sin is paid for. So don't be ashamed. Don't feel condemned. There's no condemnation if you're in Christ. This act is remembering that you're not guilty anymore. You don't have to carry the shame of that sin. So confess it freely, and then I'll lead us in a time of communion.